This podcast is produced by The Brand is Female. Hi, I'm Mungi. Welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Everything that happens in the real world also happens in the military. And especially in the United States, the military is held up as this bastion of meritocracy where race doesn't matter. um, And it's just not accurate. This week, I'm joined by the military veteran and public policy scholar, Theodore R. Johnson. Currently the director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, his work explores the role that race plays in electoral politics, issue framing, and disparities in policy outcomes. We spoke a great deal about his book, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America, and its central premise that racism is an existential threat to America. I was interested to hear his thoughts on the involvement of military veterans during the January 6th insurrection, and in response, he shared the very real paradox of the Black American experience. For those of you who like practicality, he detailed some concrete things we can do to foster national solidarity. Here's our conversation. Well, Theodore R. Johnson, welcome to the Everyday Ubuntu podcast. Thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to speak with you. And I will just jump right in and ask my first question. Um, It's about how our resumes are not a full explanation of who we are as a person. And so I'm wondering what's missing from your resume that you think is important for people to know about you. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And and actually it's a question that I had to answer myself uh, because I spent the first two decades of my career in the military and uh, after 20 years in the military, you know, you get to like retire and go do something else. And the something else I wanted to do was go think about the way that race interacts with our politics and how that shapes the way people vote, the way it shapes public policy outcomes. But when I was applying for positions, no, all people could see was my resume and which suggested that I knew nothing about race and politics except for the doctorate that I had just finished uh, earning. And everything on my resume was all national security, this military, that. Uh, and so the, the thing, um, the, usually resumes uh, paint a picture of a person that puts them in a box of sorts. Mm-hmm. And I think that the thing about me not on the resume is that my mind is more curious than the things I've done, uh, things I've worked on in the past. And so my viewpoints aren't easily categorized. My um, approach to different questions or different issues aren't easily put in a box. And so it's because of that, that I can talk about something like race and politics and the outcomes or my opinions aren't immediately evident because um, I'm, I sort of bring an objective as, as best I can, an objective viewpoint um, to the question and then just see where the, the research and the information takes me. So it's it's sort of that um, uh, what you the person you see on my resume um, is usually not the person you end up meeting when we sit down in person because of uh, of of how unorthodox my approach to questions are that would be uh, seem out of step with what one would think of a military guy. Mind is more curious. I like that. That's that's always good. I think we need more of that. Um, well, okay. So you spoke about you know what you sort of did after you retired from the military, um, and and I know that you're a public policy scholar, but I'm wondering what made you join the military. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was a, a math major at Hampton University, HBCU in Virginia, and I didn't want to teach math and I didn't want to go to grad school. <laughs> I only majored in math because I was good at it in high school. Um, so that left me uh, in a little bit of a lurch. And so, uh, frankly, I joined the military because 
uh, when they learned that there was this black kid who was a math major, they had a whole bunch of money to uh, diversify their officer corps that they were willing to throw at me. Uh, so I uh, joined primarily for job security or, or to have a job after college, mm-hmm. also to travel some uh, to sort of get my both my professional feet under me, but also my um, to just mature a little bit. And then the third reason is um, I, I grew, my parents were first generation college kids um, and worked in corporate America their whole lives, which mean I had a pretty um, middle class existence. And um, I kind of felt like life had come too easy for me. So the military was a way to force me to uh, earn something on my own, sort of a rite of passage into, into manhood. And uh, so those were like the three reasons that I joined the military, none of which were like, you know, this lifelong dream of, of being in uniform or anything like that. Oh, my goodness. OK, well, you know, I there are some things that I feel have come too easy for me, but I don't know if I was I'd make that kind of plunge. <laughs> yeah. I went to boarding school, so we'll we'll say I got my discipline at boarding school. Let's let's just oh, say. Wait, so you've got a taste of it. Yeah, let's just say that. <laughs> well, you know. So then I wonder, <laughs> what has your experience as a black man in the military been? You know, what are the sort of challenges that you you saw in your time that you think have not still been overcome yet that need to be overcome? Yeah, the the military is a cross section of society. Everything that yep. happens in the real world also happens in the military. And in, especially in the United States, the military is held up as this bastion of meritocracy where race doesn't matter. Um, and it's just not accurate. Um, it is true that I have had tremendous professional opportunities at an early age that I probably wouldn't have gotten in any other institution. Okay. Um, it's also true that um, I've some of my promotions have been called like affirmative action handouts by some of my colleagues mm. or or folks who thought I got certain jobs offered to me because I was the one who diversified an, an admiral or a general's office. So that sort of kind that kind of discrimination also happens in the military just as it does in the real world. So what it told me is that um, that I, one I had the skills to succeed in a professional environment, even when the deck is sometimes stacked against you. Yeah. And two, it showed me or reaffirmed for me that no matter how hard you work, no matter how well you align yourself with an organization's principles or its culture, that people will still think that whatever you've achieved was helped along simply because you're black. And it's it's interesting that um, the same folks that say America has all the opportunity in the world for anyone, doesn't matter their race or their color, if they just are willing to work hard for it, and the military becomes the embodiment of that. And then when a black man shows up in the military or a black woman shows up in the military and does exactly that, works hard and achieves, then it's like, oh, you only got that because of, of uh, diversity quotas or affirmative action handouts. So, so it's kind of in this no-win situation and you learn to navigate those waters rather adeptly um, in, in the military, just as you would in corporate America. Yeah, I like how you, you know, you, it is a cross-section of society. And I guess sometimes we don't necessarily think about that. Um, mm. or, and, and I think, yeah, I think, think sometimes people forget about that, but you saying that I was like, oh, you are right. Like, of course, anything that would happen in society would happen there. You know, speaking of a cross section of society, obviously identity is something that is very complicated. And, and in the U S identity is clearly extremely complicated. Um, and when I think about January 6th, you know, there was a part of it that was not only about race, but it's impossible to deny that there were clearly racial elements, you know, when we see swastikas and Confederate flags being waved and hoisted up. 
Um, and so I wonder if you can sort of speak about the dichotomy of believing in this institution like the military, while also then being disappointed and hurt by it because, you know, we know that there were military veterans that were there and were part of the insurrection. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's a tough question and it, it manifests in so many ways. Um, the summer I retired from the military was the same summer Colin Kaepernick started kneeling during the national anthem. And so I'm walking into the Pentagon in uniform and folks are saying, I can't believe this guy is kneeling during the anthem. What do you think about it, Ted? And I'm like, I completely understand. I've been stopped by police more than 40 times in my life. Like this stuff, it happens. And so mm -hmm. I, I can I can uh, be a person that both understands and ha that both has an appreciation for the flag and the principles it stands for and recognize the nation has fallen short of the principles of which the flag stands for. And so my saluting it alongside Kaepernick kneeling for it, uh, kneeling in front of it, um, for me, there's no tension there. It's that th it makes perfect sense to me that there are these two different ideas about the nation um, that are define our existence in it. Um, when I think about being black in America, uh, I think like those folks that were enslaved in the country still woke up every morning and fought for their emancipation in one way or another, sometimes yeah. in a passive way, but sometimes it was rebellion. Sometimes they joined the you know, they joined the military to fight for the nation's independence or its security in hopes that their sacrifice for the country would be rewarded by their emancipation or their liberty. And they uh, only found out that um, after that sacrifice that they weren't granted, you know, that uh, slavery still persisted for 90 years after the nation was founded. And so for me, the, the Black American experience is an experience of paradoxes. It's this quandary of wanting access to the rights and privileges of citizenship, being denied those things, but still managing to um, insist on being part of the country instead of abandoning the whole project together. So as a black man whose skin suggests that I'm not completely compatible with America in a military uniform, which is sort of the epitome of American patriotism, that is in the ultimate paradox, uh, maybe only outpaced by a black family in the White House. But for most Americans, it's hard to wrestle with that imagery um, and I kind of look at it as like, this is your problem. I don't have any problem being black in uniform or being black in America. Um, it's society has a problem of seeing me as the full sort of embodiment of American principles simply because of the, the racial group I belong to. And uh, that sort of characterizes the nation's issues it's, it has had with race since its beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like this like simultaneous opposing existence that we are trying to live through. That's right. Yeah. Du Bois calls it uh, double consciousness or two-ness. Um, this idea of, a, I think he says something like uh, both a Negro and an American, two warring ideals trying to live in one dark body whose strength alone prevents it from being torn apart. And I kind of say ah, the ideals aren't actually at war. There's nothing incompatible with blackness and equality or liberty or freedom. It's just the exercise of those principles in our country has not lived up to what those things stand for. So the tension is that the people in our nation have been unwilling to live up to its principles, but mm -hmm. the tension is not in blackness in America. Well, well, speaking about that um, and sort of blackness in America and America in general, could you share the origin story behind your book when the stars begin to fall and sort of, you know, I, I know that you speak about the American promise and that. So could you sort of expand upon that? 
Yeah, so the book is basically um, an argument that if we don't address structural racism in the United States, that the idea of America, that we are all created equal, that we have unalienable rights to life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, that our democratic government um, derives its power from the consent of the governed, all of that stuff becomes meaningless because mm -hmm. the United States will have shown that it's more vested in racial inequality than it is on delivering the promise of America, of these ideals to every American. And so it paints, it sort of, it, it pulls the question of racism out of people's hearts and says, we're not talking about how you feel about the guy you see across the street. We're talking about the way our society is built, the way it's structured in a way that fosters racial inequality. And you can't have a structure that does that and claim that you're the nation that believes all of us are created equal. So either we perpetuate racial inequality or we take it down, but we can't do both. And if mm -hmm. we uh, don't address it sufficiently, then the American idea doesn't last. So the book basically paints a um, sort of lays out a pathway to how a multiracial coalition of folks can come together to hold the nation state accountable for not delivering on its promises of, uh, of treating us all equally, making sure we all have access to the full rights and privileges of, uh, of citizenship. And what the book also does is says that the model for this multiracial solidarity um, can actually be found in Black America and the attributes Black folks have had to um, employ, you know, sort of use, develop, and employ in order to push the nation to become a better version of itself. Um, so over the, our 245-year existence, we have become a nation state where democracy is more available, where um, slavery has been abolished, where, you know, separate but equal has been deemed unconstitutional, but we've not yet arrived at this perfect egalitarian multiracial democracy. But a lot of the pushing from where we were to where we are today is because Black Americans have insisted on their inclusion, which has forced the nation to act in a more uh, dem democratic manner. So the book sort of lays out um, the way to get to this multiracial democracy um, by looking at the history of, uh, of Black folks uh, and, and the politics that they've employed to bring it about in hopes that, you know, if, if, uh, if we can paint a picture of what it could look like, then um, maybe we might be able to muster up the courage to do something about it so that we leave the nation just a little bit better than the one we inherited. Yeah. I mean, can I get a group of people together to be these citizens that do that? Yeah. I, but also, I, you know, it, it totally makes sense what you're saying about sort of like black solidarity, because I also saw... Um, I think it was maybe a tweet somewhere where some, I don't remember who it was, so I feel bad I can't quote them, but they had said, show me an issue where black people are on one side and white people are on another side. And where in the end, the white people had been right. And the black people have said, oh, you know what? You were right about that. And I was like, oh, mm. yeah, guys, I uh, got to tell you that has not happened yet. So maybe you should listen to us. Well, and, and it's because if, if you are the group that benefits from the status quo, then what is your interest in disrupting what's happening? The only thing you're looking to do is right. sort of entrench yourselves in your current advantage position and then maybe secure a little bit more mm -hmm. advantage for the future. Whereas if you're in the out group, the folks that have been left out of this democracy, everything you do is to expand the reach of democracy to more people. So how is that harmful to anyone? Um, as opposed to if you're a part of a group that's looking to lock in advantage, well, of course you're harming people that are not in that, that have been left out of, of the, the hierarchy or at the lower levels of the hierarchy. So the push for Black inclusion in America inherently makes America 
a better version of itself or a, a version that lives up to its creed instead of one that looks to take power away from folks and hoard it for themselves right. and exclude people from, from democracy, which is, uh, has been sort of characterized too much of the nation's history. Yeah. And then I, I know that you sort of spoke about last summer's protests as a small glimpse into what national solidarity could look like. Could you explain that, please? Because, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've seen now this, the, the sort of articles and things that come out that have said now there were this many people that believed in Black Lives Matter. And now, like, the numbers have gone down all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. So I, I do think last summer was a glimpse of national solidarity, but I don't think it was specifically in response to George Floyd's murder. Um, if we look at the sweep of 2020, um, you have Ahmaud Arbery being killed by white vigilantes in Georgia. You have Breonna Taylor being shot by police in Louisville. And you have George Floyd being murdered in Minnesota. And you have a global pandemic that is killing hundreds of thousands of Americans mm -hmm. and millions around the world. And you have an a, a economy, an economy that is now crumbling. Uh, and those who are most vulnerable are being hurt because coronavirus has now shut businesses down and people now have economic instability, um, no jobs, unemployment, et cetera. And you have people stuck in their homes and told that they can't, you know, there are curfews that are happening. They can't gather with family and friends. And so all of those things together created a large swath of the country that was extremely dissatisfied with the role government was playing and not sufficiently addressing any of those things, much less all of those things. So it wasn't that they just failed uh, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. It wasn't that they just failed on stemming the tide of coronavirus or they failed in providing economic support or they failed in providing some social um, outlet or, or safety for the majority of Americans. They, they failed on all of those things. And so the protests we saw for weeks on end last summer across every state in the country, multi-generational um, across party lines, across races, ethnicities, across religions, um, was a, a multiracial coalition of folks coming together saying government has, is not doing what it's supposed to do and we're not happy about it. George Floyd's death was the spark, but it wasn't the only thing that led to those protests. Yeah. So, and the way we know this is that um, the presidential election of 2020 had the highest voter participation rate we've seen in 120 years. That is the sign of a people that are not happy with what government is doing. But what we also saw was that the election was really decided by about 40,000 votes over um, about three states in, in the Electoral College. And so, and then we see January- Which is so scary. Super scary, which is why we got January 6th. Just because we were all civically engaged in the election doesn't mean we were fighting for the same thing. And so when the losing side, which just so happened to be predominantly white and on the far right and Trump supporters couldn't accept the fact that they'd been beaten, they stormed the Capitol and declared the election a fraud. So this is so we got a glimpse of what national solidarity could look like. The problem is we didn't agree on who on what government should do and who should benefit from government's actions. Mm -hmm. And the fighting we've seen post-election through January 6th and even up to today is a result of two large sections of the country fighting for very different things. And um Whereas we could all agree that government wasn't doing its job last summer, most of us can't agree on what government should be doing this summer. Oh, man. I don't know if I should be optimistic or not. <laughs> we have to be. <laughs> well, OK, so, you know, you, you've clearly stated that sort of one of the core premises of the book is that racism is an existential threat to America. 
Um, and, and you've spoken about, you know, what us as, as citizens can sort of do, but are there one or two concrete things that you would say that we need to do now to foster this sort of national solidarity, you know, overcome this threat? Yeah, in the short term, I mean, this is a long-term fight. This is something the nation's been fighting for since before it was even founded. So we, we're not gonna win tomorrow, right. but in the short term, two things we can do. One is support um, the legislation that expands access to democracy for more people. This means protecting folks' voting rights. This means getting gerrymandering out of our elections. This means getting dark money out of our elections, like reform the institutions and processes so that we can all participate in our democracy and then when the people have spoken, that the system then protects the will of the people and executes on it. And we have to fix our systems and structures, procedures, et cetera, to make that happen. And there are, there are bills in the states across the country and a, a couple of bills in Congress right now geared to do this very thing, some of them to expand access and at the state level in particular, some to restrict access. So this is the the uh, contemporary, real-time fight we're having about voting in, in America today. We have to win that one. The second thing we can do is, um, you know, we don't know each other across racial lines. I think something yeah. like um, three and four white Americans and two and three black folks don't have a single person of another race or ethnicity in their immediate social circle. And when you up the number to um, the number of us that have zero or one person of a different race or ethnicity, it's, it's like 80 to 90%. So we, we don't live around each other. Our kids don't go to school together. In the places where we do convene together, we're not actually together. You know, we're yeah. sitting in separate places. We're not talking to one another. And so the, what that happens is when those who are looking to divide us, um, all they have to do is exploit racial tensions. And there's we're not resilient to that exploitation because we don't actually know people from the group that they're demonizing. So when they say things about immigrants, if you don't know any immigrants, you end up believing the guy from your party. If you don't know any black folks, if you don't know any poor white folks, you end up believing all of the caricatures and stereotypes. And that just further entrenches division. So the best thing we can do on a day to day basis is to proactively seek out opportunities to engage people who are different from us to form connections with democratic strangers. It'll be uncomfortable, it'll be difficult, but if we don't interact, then the demonization is even more likely to happen and uh, and sort of doom spiral to a place where the, you know any hopes of national solidarity aren't even possible. Yeah, and I also think that we sort of rely on the like, sort of one friend, you know, like that the refrain, like right. what my black friend says, and like, I've been that black friend and I'm like, you cannot put it all on one person because right. we are not a monolith. So me as your one black friend saying this does not mean that my other black friends agree with this. So exactly. let's expand, let's expand the, the group y'all. Right. And look, like we know what it's like to walk into a room at work, at a, at a club, a bar, a rep, whatever, and be the only person in that room that looks mm -hmm. like us, you know, and we have had to navigate a world where that is, where that is commonplace. Um, I think the script needs to be flipped a little bit. And, you know, I think uh, yeah. white Americans should be able to, they, they should force themselves into places where maybe they're the only one, or maybe they're one of, you know, 10% of the room looks like them and 90% doesn't. And, and instead of feeling like you're uncomfortable, learn, like get to know the people you're in the room with, whether it's in an organization, whether it's at a bar or whatever, but you have to interact with other people in this country if you want a multiracial democratic society to be the end result, because we're never going to fight for the rights of other groups um, aside from ours 
if we never have any exposure to those other groups. They're not my problem. They're not my issue. I'm just worried about me and my people. A multiracial democracy can't function that way. So um, it's it, it, this is probably a tactic that is most comfortable for Black people, frankly, mm-hmm. because it's the way we've had to live ever since we've been here. It will be most uncomfortable uh, probably for white Americans and maybe even some other um, groups that live in like small enclaves in large cities, you know, in Chinatown or in little Cuba and that sort of thing yeah. to get out of those places and go and hang around black people and, uh, and, and watch the stereotypes fall away. And then even when the, the times where a stereotype is confirmed or you see evidence of it, don't believe that that now characterizes the entire group. And if you meet a hundred black folks, you're going to find that, um, the, stere- the, the, the caricature you saw of them on cops or on, you know, that one black person on your favorite sitcom doesn't fit. And you need to, you know, complicate your understanding of, of black folks in order to have a real understanding of um, how the nation is falling short, especially when it comes to access to our, our democracy. Yeah, I heard someone once what, what you said about sort of flipping the switch. And I don't know, I don't know if it was my mom or maybe it was someone else. But they said what what needs to happen is like, white people or like a group of white women, I think as we were discussing like white feminism, need to go to Essence Fest, but not with a group of your friends. You need to go as an individual. You need to stay where like all of the people at Essence Mm. Fest are staying and like actually be involved because that's what it's like for us every day. And then you'll see what, you know, what life is like and how we feel. You can't be with a group of four or five of you. You need to be like individual. Right. And how that one black friend that you've had over your house doesn't summarize the black experience in America, you you know, and mm-hmm. uh, so I think that's a great idea, you know, force people to get outside of their comfort zone and um, have a better appreciation for the other folks in this country. And instead of thinking that they are the center of the universe and everyone else needs to assimilate to their way of living. Yeah. And so now I want to ask you, um, what is the concept of the power in I am? Mm. So this is actually something I um, I learned in the military. Um, one of my drill instructors uh, like drilled this into our head all the time to, that when we introduced ourselves to never say my name is, but always to um, be more to, to take ownership of your name, because that is uh, a way of sort of taking ownership of your character, your identity, instead of uh, by saying my name is suggests that you're sort of it's a, it's a passive declaration of who you are. You know, this is what people mm-hmm. call me. This is how people see me. Whereas I am is is assertive. It says this is who I am, and this is um, sort of how I present to the world. So um, I, I sort of took that uh, on board because I, I was in a place. I was sort of like clout chasing, frankly, to, for lack of a better word. You know, I was always looking for the academic award or the good job, or like the the accolade that would add to my resume that would sort right. of tell people I'm important before they ever met me instead of finding just the inherent value of just being me. And uh, I am sort of says that I am, uh, I have a story. I have a purpose. I have passion. I have um, meaning to this world beyond uh, whatever rank is on my collar or whatever accolade is on my, my resume. And so the power in I am is just sort of that it's, it's kind of like black lives matter, that assertion individualized. You know, I don't matter because I'm, I'm black. I matter and I'm black. And I just, you know, it's that recognition of the inherent value that people have that doesn't need to be um, supplemented by like these blue check marks from society to say that you are somebody important. 
I like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and remember to interest myself that way as well now. It's tough. It, it actually is tough to when you know, um, hey, my name is so and so. That's how you introduce yourself on every mm-hmm. conference or every. And so it, it is a mental um, flip of the switch to sort of get out of that habit. No, but I really like it. And then what what do you see as your purpose work or your life's purpose? You know, you've you've done a lot. We've obviously discussed, and your resume is 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 extensive but what what do you see as your life's purpose yeah it's it's hard you know i'm still i think i'm still trying to figure it out um i i, I mean it's it's kind of trite to say i want to leave the world better than i found it um but it's true um it, it i i know that when we will never get rid of racism but i want my kids experience with it to be much better than mine, just like my experience with, with it was much better than my parents who grew up in Jim Crow, you know, in the deep South, mm-hmm. uh, which, and their experience was much better than their parents' experience. And so I think it's that, I think it's trying to force this world to be like, uh, just to become, a, to prioritize racial equality a little bit more tomorrow than it did yesterday. And uh, and in hopes that over time, we will continue this trajectory towards uh, a slightly more equal and more just society. Um, and that's kind of it. And, you know, I just and, and instead of being sensationalist and sort of contributing to uh, the division or trying to make money off of, off of talking about racism by, by turning folks against one another, I'm OK with with presenting it in like a nuanced, beautiful, complex way and then suggest that it's hard to, to make the progress we want to see. But encouraging people that it's worth the difficulty. Um, if enslaved black folks who wake up every morning and not take themselves out, but instead go to the field in hopes that maybe tomorrow our work and our struggle and our demands will be enjoyed by future generations, then the least I can do is add my little, you know, two cents to the the hill of sacrifice and blood that have been um, uh, that have already been expended to to create the country that we have now. So, I guess that's I guess that's kind of it, you know. Um, to, to address the, the issue of racial inequality, both um, in, in society, but even in our public policy and the, the things that we prioritize in the country. Yeah, and I, and I get what you're saying because I, I feel the same way when I think of my mother having lived through apartheid South Africa and then still being the sort of like generous, empathetic, forgiving human that she is. Like, who right. am I to then, you know, think that what I've been given is, is the worst and I can't continue on. So I, I totally understand that. Right. Yeah. And can you imagine the strength it takes to live in that kind of society and still maintain faith and hope and optimism um, for tomorrow and encourage your children to to contribute to the society instead of burn it down for all the wrong? It's, it's just it's a, black folks across the world have an amazing capacity to endure and to improve on almost everything that, that we encounter. And that's and, you know, like you said, who are we? to say the struggle's no longer worth it. Yeah, it's, it's it's that resilience that I'm kind of sad that we have to have, but that we do have. Right, right. And it, it connects to my next question, and, and it's what has sustained you in difficult moments, whether that's, you know, in the military or or, or dealing with racism these days, like what, what sort of keeps you going? Yeah, it, it, it's, um, you know, it's sort of the faith of the folks that came before me. Uh, I Like in those moments where I'm like, this is all, crap and and um, sort of want to check out of whatever it is I'm doing, go do something else. Um, I, I just think about like my parents or my grandparents 
and how disappointed would they be if I quit or if I gave up um, and instead of endured and improved on whatever it is I'm, I'm up against or, or come out of the other side of it with more knowledge, more information to pass on to other generations to help other folks through those struggles so that they won't have as hard of a time. And that's what keeps me going is sort of is is making those who came before me proud mm -hmm. and um, sort of reminding them that their sacrifice wasn't in vain, that that all of the dreams they had to give up on, um, those things weren't lost forever. They were just passed on to future generations. And uh, and so I, I kind of want to carry that mantle some. And who are the people who have inspired you? Um, so they're sort of like the, the close folks. You know, I think my grandmother, my mother's mother really inspired me. Um, one, because she believed in me in, in this way that I still don't understand. I don't know what it was she saw <laughs> in me, but it's sort of like um, you when other people see something in you, um, you begin to believe in the power of that thing, even if you can't see it yourself. Absolutely. And she, she really, when I, at a young age, she just sort of poured that into me um, in a way that made me think there was something special I was here to do, even if I don't know what, what that was or is. And so definitely her. And, and, um, and of course, my, my parents, and that's more to like, again, sort of ensure that I'm delivering, I, I'm, I'm sort of a, um, a return on their investment for for the, the things that they sacrificed in order to give us me and my siblings a, a good life but then i've got sort of the um the, the folks that inspire me like in writing or in, in thinking and wb du bois i think is probably at the top of the list and the way that he was able to um think about our nation through sociological terms um mm -hmm. and through beautiful writing that was um both compelling in its logic but also in its emotional appeals and I, I will never get to that level of, uh, of, of scholarship and prose, but that's, <laughs> I think on both ends, he's an inspiration. I like that. Well, I'm gonna ask you my two favorite questions. And the first one is, what is your greatest fear for humanity? Um, that selfishness will cause the whole thing to collapse. Um, that selfishness, whether it's around racial inequality, economic inequality, or sort of uh, a more national kind of selfishness that exacerbates things like climate change. Mm -hmm. And that this great opportunity we have to create a society of, uh, a world society of, of, um, of enough, you know, where there's enough food, where there's enough opportunity for everyone, we will hoard it and um, at, to the point where there's not enough for any of us. And, uh, and then I, I fear that might have disastrous consequences in terms of war, but also in terms of like natural disasters and the way the environment rejects our, our use of it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And then what is your greatest hope for humanity? Um, it is, I hope that we can figure out how to live in a multiracial world society without immediately finding ways to oppress other groups that don't look like us. And the um, human history is filled with oppression across racial and ethnic groups, um, usually attached to land or resources or something like that. But the greatest hope is if we can act, figure out how to create a multiracial egalitarian society, then I think we would have like fulfilled the, the, the greatest hopes and ambitions of mankind. Uh, you know, If we can get out of the sort of, um, uh, more 
base, uh, selfish and sort of doggy dog kind mm -hmm. of living and, and instead expand to one that prioritizes opportunity and compassion and that sort of thing, uh, especially across racial lines. I think, um, I think that's the best we can hope for. I, I, I agree with that. Well, Ted Johnson, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. This was great. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today. And don't forget to hit subscribe and give the show a rating and review wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Follow me at mungi.ingomane on Instagram. I'd love to hear from you and get your feedback on the show. I'll be back in a week with a new episode. Thank you for listening to Everyday Ubuntu.